Hey, we're in the fourth chapter of Daniel, and um, how many of you, I don't have to read the entire thing. Uh, Okay, we have some answered. Okay, good, 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 good. Um, I'm going to just give you the overall of this chapter. This chapter is not one that it reads like the previous ones. It's uh, uh, it changes from uh, one narrator to another narrator, a little bit more clunky to read. Um, So the story is at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, has another dream. This dream is about a tree that is covers the whole earth and uh there is all kinds of fruit on this tree this tree is beautiful and it is um under it lives all sorts of animals and many peoples find themselves safe under this tree so this is a an ancient sort of uh symbol um for for a kingdom uh for a king or a kingdom it's a tree and um that is not unusual. Um, that's used quite a bit. And the idea is, uh, is the, again, fruitfulness. This kingdom's fruitful. The kingdom is so fruitful that other people come to it for its abundance. It is also so powerful and so widespread that uh, it, people uh, find safety under it. Um, this is the idea of, uh, of, of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is also talked about as a tree. Uh, in the New Testament that would fill. So um, there's the idea of the tree. The the tree is that of something fruitful, abundant, and something that provides shelter and protection. But what happens is that the dream dream takes a very, because then there is a messenger, a holy one, uh, a spirit that comes into the dream, and it's a foreboding spirit, and it terrifies King Nebuchadnezzar. And command is given by the Holy One is to cut this tree down to its stump. And it is cut down. And uh, and now, you know, the tree is just a stump and it's got uh, some iron and some bronze that uh, surrounded at the base of it. And that's what's left. And so, um, then it, the, the, the narrator goes on to say that this is what is going to happen to, to, to the king and to the kingdom uh, is it's going to be removed, cut down. And, um, and so Nebuchadnezzar is terrified and says, well, nobody can interpret it for me and tell me what this is all about. Uh, once again, Belshazzar or Daniel to come and tell me what this dream means. And um, Daniel comes and um, tells him the dream, tells him what that's about, and tells him what's going to happen is you're, you're going to be cut down. You're going to be reduced to an animal. You're going to live uh, among the animals for a while, for seven, and the, the literal term is seven times. And so the idea is um, completion, not a precise number of years. When you see seven in the Bible, Always assume it's symbolic for completion. It's not a, li- a term to be used to say literally seven days, literally seven times seven, literally this. It's meant to say this is of time, and um, and so the king is going to lose his mind for a period of time, 
And at the point where the completion, where it, it comes to its completion, then he will return to his own sanity. Okay. So what happens is uh, then one day, King Nebuchadnezzar, a year later, it says, after the dream uh, and its interpretation, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking around on his palace looking at everything and his greatness and starts to boast, well, I am, and uh, loses his mind and ends up living among uh, the beasts, it says, living like, like a beast, living out in the, in the wilderness. And, uh, and then he gains, calls up to heaven, humbles himself and recognizes that he is not God, that he is not, you know, some uh, semi-divine being. He's not amazing. He's not all these things that he thinks he has become. And uh, he repents, calls on God, and his sanity is restored. And then it finishes by saying that King Nebuchadnezzar is now becomes the greatest uh, ever. His greatness actually is it, it exceeds uh, because of his humility. Okay. So this is one of these stories. How many have heard the story if you grew up in, in the church world, uh, Catholic or Protestant? You hear the church, you hear that story. So the, the story tended to be, I mean, I, I don't know about you. You could put it in the chat what you heard the story to mean. But I, I remember hearing this story and it was definitely about like humility. That was almost always the message, um, the moral of the story. Be arrogant or, you know, God will chop you down, you know, um, and uh, you will end up being humbled. Uh, and, and so, you know, recognize that there's, that you're not God, God's God and, um, and walk around with some level of humility. How many heard that sort of moral for the story to the story or a different one? I'd, I'd love to hear if you had something different that was communicated to you, um, through the story. And I think by the way, it's not that it's untrue. It's actually true. <laughs> um, but I, uh, even more on the practical level, like, like make it like flesh it out for me. Like, what does that look like? And, and, um, and I think that could be tremendously helpful for us. So first of all, to begin with is we have to understand an ancient world view use on to this day that lends itself to um, this kind of pride that ultimately causes our own demise. I'm not talking about arrogance in the same way of like, you know, I'm just so amazing that boastful about anything that has to do with um, a, a, a forgetting of where we come from, a forgetting of grace, a forgetting of all that we have is gift and grace from God. Right. And, and forgetting the problem. <laughs> so let's talk about hierarchies. Hierarchy is an ancient is common in the ancient world. Everything was based on a hierarchy. So the gods of the ancient world, there were super, you know, super, super gods. And then there were gods that served under the, those. There were gods over particular bodies of water or gods over uh, areas. And they would have certain narrative stories around those gods in their conquests. And also what, what they controlled and what served. If we think back to 10,000 years ago, um, the earliest civilizations, the earliest societies were being formed in the Mesopotamian area. And so you have these early civilizations being formed. Prior to that, most of the way things were done were tribal. 
these families, extended families. So cousins and siblings, you know, cousins and, and, and nieces and nephews and, and, and so on. And they would, they, they would live together some tribe and they would move together in a tribe. If they were nomadic, if they traveled uh, to, to survive, they did so as a family unit and as a family system. In those family systems, there was a kind of hierarchy, right? So you had the elder and the elder village or the elder of that tribe was the one that got respect and tended to be the one who gave guidance uh, to the rest of the family. Um, in it, at its best, it was based upon love. It was based upon care. It was based upon making sure that this family system survived, survived and that even after the elder died, uh, the, the family would continue on. And then what happened is as these civilizations formed, these tribes came together to learn how to live, not based on just the survival of my family and the lineage, but also, hey, we have something mutual. We would, you want to live, we want to live, we want to be able to survive. It's kind of tough in this world because it's based on subsistent living. You just kind of eke out an existence day by day. There's no guarantees. And so what if we were to come together these early civilizations came together, formed together, and what was necessary was a hierarchy. Who is going to run this whole thing? Who's going to be the monarch? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to be the, uh, the one who dictates things and system of laws that govern our society? And so these early formations had a lot of hierarchy and structure to them. Okay. Now, is there something wrong with hierarchy? Is hierarchy a thing? I would like you to put one thing positive about hierarchy and one thing negative about hierarchies in the chat. And while you do that, I'm going to take a sip of water because I'm dying here. One positive thing about hierarchy and one negative thing. Okay, positive thing would be structure. Mario puts in the uh, chat there. Thank you. Yep. For sure. Structure is a necessary thing. It's, I mean, it's like impossible to do anything without some kind of structure, a system order and control. Yep. Growth hierarchies are good. Dominance hierarchy is not. Growth gives direction. Dominance can be abused. Yes. What else? Um, cat is good because you have a leader and bad is if you have a bad leader. Yes, <laughs> that's that's universally true and, and consistently true. It's it's it all depends on the leader, doesn't it? Uh, Lori, uh, Khan, people can abuse their position of power. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Kevin Davis, higher up folks insulate their distracting noise and junk. Yep. Uh, negative is division. Yeah. Resolves disputes. Yes. Leadership. Accountability is positive. Okay. Yeah. All right. So makes hierarchies uh, bad is not the structure, right? So we can we can say that structure is good, order is good. Um, we need that to to really thrive. But it's bad when the hierarchy creates value system around keeping itself in power at the cost of other people. Uh, here's what can happen in a in a in a system of hierarchy. Think of democracy. Think of capitalism. Uh, capitalism is based on, hard, you know, you work hard, you increase wealth, and there should be freedom to be able to do so to increase wealth. And theoretically, that includes, that increases the wealth and the, and, uh, of every as you uh, grow in that way. Um, 
But what can happen with with hierarchies as you get into positions of power, whether there's a strict structure of hierarchy, like you're in a company and you're the CEO or you're a, um, you know, you're a COO or you're in a position of authority or a position of power over other people. But there's also uh, structures that are, that are not that organized. For example, you're um, you're in a group of a social group and you're with friends and you're hanging out. But because you may be viewed by others as a leader, there is a certain privilege that you gain from that, from your charisma, from your gifting, from your intelligence, from your uh, service and love and heart that serve other people. And because of that, you I mean, all sorts of reasons for why we grow in influence within social circles that don't have strict hierarchies. But here's why I think those two are important to, to pair up and to understand. It's because what can happen in those systems is as you grow of power in levels of self-autonomy, as you free yourself from things and you grow and develop, is that you can get to a place where now as you look at people who are not as uh, healthy, not as free, as wealthy as you are, not as, um, you know, maybe they, they've got uh, financial struggles and difficulties they're going through, is that there will be two competing forces within you, my friends, two competing motivations. It will be empathy and compassion for those who don't have what you have. The other one will be to preserve what you have and have gained through hard work. Are you with me? Resonate with those as competing motivations that are always present within you. And what happens is when hierarchies begin to develop value systems to solve this tension that always live with, it's a tension that is meant to stay within you because it produces something better if you'll allow it to stay with you. But what we do with it is there's, a, there's, there's something uncomfortable. There's something uncomfortable about compassion because then it begs some level of responsibility. You hear, are you with me? Are you still asleep? Does that make sense? It bears, you feel a measure of responsibility if you feel compassion and empathy for other people. So what we do is immediately begin to create narratives and stories of why it is. Maybe the gods in the ancient world have blessed me. Maybe the gods cursed them and that's their lot in life. Way of thinking. But it was an ancient rationalization because I, I, I feel troubled by the fact that you don't have what I have. And at the same time, I don't want to lose what I have. The ancient world did that. Do you see that in this story with King Nebuchadnezzar? You should, because it's all in there. Nebuchadnezzar has achieved greatness. <laughs> and he is in a position of power. And what he does in this chapter, if you read it, there's a whole usefulness about I have achieved or I am great or this is uh, because, of, because of me. I have acquired all these things. I've done all. It's all this belief that somehow through his uh, his gifting, his power, his fortitude, that he was able to accomplish all of these things, not because of the fundamental truth for every follower of Jesus. And that is that we have everything we have because of including our very capacity 
to do the things that we're doing right now is because of grace. And this is a thing that we forget, which is why in Deuteronomy chapter uh, six, let's move this screen over here so I can read it. Um, it's one of my favorite chapters. I love Deuteronomy to begin with, but this is one of my favorite chapters within Deuteronomy is, is, is uh, chapter six. This is Moses speaking to uh, the Jewish nation. And he's talking to them about what's going to happen after he passes on. He's going to move on. And Joshua is going to take them into the promised land, the land of, of, of abundance. And he's predicting that you're going to succeed. You're going to do well. And you've emerged through the fire. And, and, and what I'm hoping you do is you learn the lessons of the fire. Because if you don't learn the lessons of the fire, you will go back into the fire. And many of us go from fire to blessings, back into the fire, back into the blessings, back into the fire, and back into the blessings, and back into the fire, and back at, you get it, right? I mean, this is the story of our lives so much of the time. Nebuchadnezzar ascends to great. He's cut down. What happens? He repents. He back into power. I mean, this is the, this is the human cycle. This is the reason why the story is told. It's because it's not told just because it's a historical you know, event. It's told because guess what? This is what we do. This is what you do. This is what I do. And if we don't learn the lessons of the fire, we're going to continue on. So Deuteronomy, Moses is being extremely deliberate about saying this. Please learn the lesson of the fire because you will end there. You will end up there again as a nation. You know, and, and so he says to them in, in chapter six, which I love, again, this is my favorite chapter. Um, he says, when the Lord, your God brings you, this is verse 10, chapter six, verse 10. When the Lord, your God brings you into the land, he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Are you with me? Are you listening to this gift, my friends? This is all grace. Wells you did not dig and vineyards and olives groves you did not plant. When you eat and you are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land slavery. That verse has profoundly impacted me for years. In fact, I, when I was in my 20s, I got a ring that said that was in Hebrew, that had a Hebrew inscription from Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, uh, this passage, do not forget the Lord. So it's, yeah, and I love that. I even memorized the Hebrew word because it's been something that has resonated with me for so long is the forgetfulness that I have in my own life. Once I'm through the fire, that I return to old patterns, old habits. I forget. I forget. I love the name Zechariah. It means the Lord remembers. I love that because it's this thing of God always encouraging Israel. I'm one who remembers and then encouraging them. Do not forget when you get to that place. Don't forget when you exit this trial that you're in right now. Don't forget the lessons of the trial. So what are the lessons of the trial? Oh, so many. There are things that we do that we learn not to do, but you know, it can all be. Category of giving and receiving grace, 
the ability to receive grace when it comes our way. When people come to us and lovingly speak words or even not so lovingly, but they're truthful words that are painful for us to hear about things that are self-destructive. And someone says to us, hey, that is something that is destroying your life and you need to change this. And we, don't, and we struggle with it. And finally, we listen to it. And when we listen to it and we change our lives, then think, what is the lesson that we learn there? Oh, I shouldn't do that very thing again. That's the lesson. No, the lesson is, is greater than that. The lesson is, are you capable of hearing the wisdom and the grace that comes from other people around you? And the greater lesson is that God is always pouring out his grace to you, even when it hurts, even when it's about course correction. Because if you can, then it's not about the individual lesson you learned. Like, yeah, I got to be better at money management, better at you know, relationships. Yeah, I got to be better. I get, I can't get hooked on drugs again. I can't do, yes, those are, those are the smaller lessons. The bigger lessons is, can you listen and receive the grace that's always coming to you, even when it hurts? And then, can you remember that grace and then give it to other people too? Not in just in terms of like cor correction. I mean, in terms of like, I in this struggle. When you exit the fire and you are blessed, you will be tempted again between those two motivations of empathy for where people are and the desire to have, the fear of losing it. Whew, glad I'm through that test. I don't ever want to get back there again. And I don't want to talk to people who are there either because that's too close to me. That's, that's, I remember that. Here's the way it, it, it fleshes itself out sometimes. I like to talk about the way we tell stories. How do we tell stories of our past? Think about the way you tell a story. Is it, does it include things like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, the, the stories we like to tell are stories like, I figured it out and I worked hard and I got to where I'm at. That's a good American story, not a true story. It's not the truth. The truth is I was graced by people who told me some things that were really hard that I really didn't want to hear. It still, it still hurts as I reflect back on those moments. But it was love. And then there were people that came along and gave me a hand. Some people that even told me I didn't even realize that I was in a pit. And then other people who came down, reached down and grabbed my hand and pulled me out of the pit because I couldn't pull myself out of it. Now, I hate those stories because those stories don't make me sound like I'm smart. It doesn't make me sound like, the, you know, I had the willpower because I didn't have the willpower. But that's the reason why Moses says, remember the Lord, your God, who took you out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery. You couldn't do it. You could not do it. It was not your willpower. It was not your brilliance. It was not your strength. It was the ultimate grace of a loving God who consistently comes to you and me. And at times when we do not deserve it, reaches down and pulls us out of the pit. That's the story of Jesus Christ. 
That's the story of grace. And that's the story that keeps us in a place of humility and of solidarity and of generosity. Man, I hate the fact that I, I can't, I didn't, I stumbled onto this. I hate the fact that I, I wasn't like, I didn't even want to change, to be honest with you. It was really not my genius that got me there. Let me tell you about the brilliance of God's grace. Let me tell you about the beauty of it. It showed up in, in this friend. It showed up in this person. It showed up in my, it showed up in these people that came to me and with love and with grace. And I am ultimately grateful to God. That's humility. And then solidarity, I'm with you in your suffering. I get it. I get your struggle. Tell me more. I want to be, I want to be part of you. And I want you to be part of me. We're siblings. I, I'm, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not like high, not in a position greater than you. There is a God, though, that is. I'm not that God. I'm not that transcendent divine being. I'm you, you, me. There is we. And then there's this incredible divine power that is full of grace and full of love. And we're all solidarity. And then generosity. Yeah, I do have this newfound freedom, this newfound blessing, this newfound. I've gone through the fire. And now, what is my responsibility to help you emerge from the fire? You know, this is what Nebuchadnezzar gets at the end. I want to read this part to you. of chapter four, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of his palace. Oh, wrong. Uh, let me go down to verse, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. My sanity was restored. And I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does it. Powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see that? Humility that Nebuchadnezzar gets it. It's like it's it's not my power, my grace. It's whatever God wants. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for my glory, for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to the even greater than before. Now, I. Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just. And all who walk, he is able to humble 
And this is the attitude that he returns to. You know, over again, the prophets of the Old Testament would say, folks, this is what it looks like when you are in positions of power is you are to lift up the oppressed. That is true religion, as Isaiah 50. And this is what happens when we recognize like, okay, you know, there is this grace, ultimate source of grace that comes from beyond me. And if that's true, then I can risk having exited this fire and being in a place of, of greater blessing. I can risk being abundant in my grace because when I am, there's even more that comes because I live now in uh, eternal source of grace. I'm no longer living in my own power and in my own goodness and in my own ability to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm aware that I now am part of this eternal flow of grace and it flows into me through me to others. This is what's amazing about this story of King Nebuchadnezzar is it is our story. It is our story of going into the fire, coming out of the fire, back into the fire, coming out of the fire, and then finally understanding, oh, right. I keep forgetting, as Moses said not to, I keep forgetting that this is where I come from. Even Jesus said that to his disciples. Don't any one of you think that you were somehow more noble than anyone else? The only reason why you are here is because I chose you. Now, that sounds like for a moment, somebody might go, well, that sounds arrogant of Jesus to say that. No, that's exactly the opposite. The point he's making is in the same way that God chose me, you will choose other people. It is the gift of love and grace. And it is not because of your nobility or my nobility or anybody else's. It is purely love and grace. And the only thing we can do is submit and surrender ourselves to it. And Admit and surrender ourselves to the ever eternal flow of God's grace to us and through us. We have learned the lesson of the fire. And when we come through that, we bring that lesson into the glory, into the places of abundance, into the places of freedom, into the places of joy. And when we do so, that's when we live in humility, solidarity, and generosity. That's when we move into, I choose to enter into your suffering, to come to you and in whatever way I can to help lift you as well. And in that way, we all rise, right? All boats at that point. And that's the power of grace. So I looked up the definition of a benediction and it's just, it's a short plus. So just the way I like it, nice, short and sweet. I'm going to make this short and sweet and my hope, this is my hope. May the strength of God sustain us. May the power of us, may the hands of God protect us. May the way of God direct us. May the love of God go with us this day, night, and forever. Thank you.